I thought you were dead. Sun out of your eyes and be yourself. Heard you were dead. She's dead, wrapped in plastic. That man's dead back then. It was worse than dead. He must be dead. Is this a dead man, Ducky? That's a sacred spa- space, too, in America. In America. And, you know, they're just disrespecting it. Yeah, you know, we fought for that freedom of, of for Fred Durst. We fought for Fred Durst's freedom. We fought for Fred Durst, yeah, so that's exactly right. I think a lot of these bands that played the 99 Woodstock need to be forgiven uh, yeah. of any wrongdoing. They, they went through a lot. That was a I mean, war in itself. Yeah, the past 20 years have been, like, the era of reconstruction from Woodstock 99, so... <laughs> True. <sighs> All right, we're starting out strong. Yeah, history. Yeah, fighting civil wars. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's start the show. Welcome to Roast Mortem. You belong here. My name is Tom. Let's start the show. I'm Travis. I'm Connor, and let's start the show. Mike's oh, not here today. Um, he's. I don't even know what he's doing, but we miss him. He's not starting the show, that's for sure. He's he's delivering yeah. shows to other people. True. Yeah. He is yeah, he is dropping off your friend's box set. <laughs> that's right. The Rose Mortem box set on cassette tape. That'd be the worst usage of plastic ever. I know. Our right? show on cassette. Yeah, and also I think we have like 400 hours or something, or like 400,000 hours or something crazy like that. I think all us tape. on VHS would be a bigger waste of plastic, but cassettes up there. The 30-minute the VHSs, yes. yes. Yeah, that would be <laughs> How was everyone's week? We had a Thanksgiving. Were you guys thankful that the turkey's snout showed up on your plate and you gobbled it all up? Yes. I was very thankful for that. That's right. I was, too. Ah, I, I enjoyed my turkey snout, for sure. What did you do out there in Portland? Do they have, like, a communal turkey? Do they have homeless turkey out Homel- there? Where- homeless turkey? Yeah, it's called uh, Poodles. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, uh, I had Thanksgiving with a couple of people in the building. It was fun. Uh, I made some banging stuffing. that I put sausage in there. The cornbread mm. stuffing this time was sausage. And uh, is the way to go for stuffing. Yeah. And then uh, over the Black Friday, I decided to drive up to Leavenworth, Washington, which is like a Christmas town in the mountains of Washington. And so I got my Christmas on. I was looking at ornaments. Uh, I Oh, it's like, so it's this, Leavenworth is this like town that was going to die in like the turn of the 20th century. Should it and, have died? What's that? Should it have died? No, because in the 1960s, the smart people were like, let's turn it into a Bavarian town. Oh. And and so they do, like, Oktoberfest. They do, like, tons of German food. So I got all my knockwurst, my bratwurst, all my worst. Yeah, your grobe metwurst. Yeah, and uh, I shopped Christmas things. It was fun. I got to see snow. There's snow up there. Nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's got some good stuff. Yeah. Isn't Leavenworth a prison also? Yeah, I think that's Leavenworth. That's like Leavenworth, Texas, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh. a big federal prison. 
Yeah. This is Leavenworth, Washington, which is the opposite of a prison. It's Santa Claus time. Well, I mean, they could they could use a few prisoners to grow pine trees. Yeah, that's true. That's you true. Know, harvest them, uh, drive all the prisoners up there, uh, give oh, them little Le axes. Leavenworth prisons in Kansas. Yes. All right. Well, Why a, Chris a Christmas town that is Bavarian. That makes sense. Yeah. I think the, the old Tannenbaum was invented there. Yeah. The For those of you listening, that's, yeah, that's the uh, Christmas tree. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's beautiful. The history of Christmas unfolding before us. Yes. Mm -hmm. Tom, <sighs> well, how about you? What would you do? I, I don't know. I got drunk a bunch of times. I probably said jokes. I tried to keep all of my conversation non-political, um, which is hard. I've been actually yeah. trying to do that for the best part of the year, and it still winds up there because everything is so charged right now. People just want to keep bringing it up. I know. It's like, I, politics are dumb. Um, <laughs> I know this. You guys know this. Our listeners know this. Uh, but for some reason, we get sucked into them time and time again uh, with our loved ones. It's true. And uh, I, honestly, it's just not, it's not that fun anymore. I but it's like a chore now. Now you have to think of other things to talk about. People just right. want to know what Hunter Biden bought from Panda Express. That's See, all. I do. I, my deepest, sincerest heart wants to know what is on that laptop. But I have to be a bigger guy and not care that much. Yeah, I just want to know what he ordered from Panda Express. Did he get the Lomain? I want to know who his drug dealer is. Because he's probably got the best drugs. Yeah. That's true. Connor, Definitely what about really you? Drugs. What? Uh, I'll keep it short. It was good. Ate turkey, potatoes in many different forms, and then uh, drank too much wine on Friday night. It was great. Ow, your head probably hurts still. Yeah, my body was thrown off all of yesterday. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was good. So you were basically eating antique grapes in a liquid form. That's right. Lots of <laughs> lots of old grapes yeah. for me. Let's talk That's about good. an old grape of a man. <laughs> from scotland where they grow all the grapes that's a great transition travis yeah. let's talk about an old grape of a man cool. of course we're talking about douglas haig um i don't know how old he is at this point but uh he's an older guy and he is when we last left him on his way to india where he has just been appointed as uh inspector general of the cavalry of india so nice fancy title for him so he gets there in October of 1903. He arrives in the town of Simla, which is where the two most senior figures of British Imperial India reside. That is the Viceroy of India, who at this point is a man named Lord Curzon, and the Commander-in-Chief of the Indian Army, who is Haig's like, immediate superior. And that is none other than Lord Kitchener himself. We're back with our old pal Kitchener. Oh, Kitchener. Yeah. What does uh. the term Viceroy mean? I thought it was like something funny that they did that was like a little racist in the Star Wars series. The uh, the Jar Jar Binks, he was talking to a yeah. viceroy or something. Oh yeah, those guys and that looked like catfish. Well, they were I supposed to be I... Asians. They had like yeah. Asian accents and they were like obsessed with technology and funny and counting things. And I that was the first time I heard the term viceroy. I thought that was a made up title. What is a viceroy? It's like a governor equivalent but for like a whole country so 
Here's the official definition. Uh, it's an official who reigns over a political entity in the name of and as the representative of a monarch of a territory. Right. And because it starts with a vice, it's one word, viceroy. Yeah. As an American, I hear it as viceroy, assuming that there's a Roy over him. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You're uh, not the main Roy. You're the viceroy. Yeah, exactly. He's a Roy of that our country. That is exactly what it is. Yeah. So, can I talk? Uh, Roy just is French for king. So can it's I vice king. Can oh, I talk gosh. to your Roy? Can I talk to your Roy? <laughs> yeah. Come on. Yeah, it's Roy Rogers the Roy, and the vice Roy, Roy Rogers. <laughs> Sorry for that. So that's what it means. That's there a genuine question I had. And yeah, I didn't know either. I didn't really know either. I just knew it meant like a um, British guy in India. Um, <laughs> so that guy's Lord Curzon. Uh, and Kitchener is the one who had sought Haig to join this or come to this position. Um, Haig had kind of earned a reputation as a great administrator. Um, and he also had knowledge of India, having been there a few times already. So... Kitchener was like, that's my guy. And Kitchener and the Viceroy did not get along. Um, it was, you know, bickering over who actually controlled the army in India. Is it the Viceroy? Is it the Commander-in-Chief? So Haig is brought in um, on Kitchener's side in this conflict, I guess. He spends most of his time in India touring the country and visiting various outposts, uh, just like inspecting the troops, watching them march around, telling them if we're doing a good job at marching around or not. Um, just similar basic administrative tasks like this. It's pretty boring, his time in India at this point. Sometimes yeah. you need a Doug to come in there and tell all the Roys, yo. <laughs> I'm, I, wish it, I wish you'd look at a list of Viceroys and see if any of them are named Roy. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, so in 1905, so after a couple years in India, Haig is back in England on leave. So he's still in the same position, but he's visiting London um, going golfing at Windsor Castle with the royal family in July of 1905. There are a lot of royals in attendance. Uh, Hague always kind of ran in these social circles. He is introduced to the... So the queen had all these maids of honor who like were just like ladies-in-waiting kind things and then just like circled around the queen all the time. And he meets one of them, Dorothy Vivian, who's 26 years old at the time. 36 hours later, Haig and her are engaged. Oh, oh. he's definitely gay. <laughs> yeah. He's gotta be. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's literally like they meet, and then 36 hours later, they announce, we are getting married. It kind of shocked everybody. No one had any idea that they knew each other. I don't think they did. Um, or that Haig would jump into something so quickly like this. He just saw, like, so this is a, a lady in waiting. So yeah, her family has some kind of influence, but not terribly. Not yeah, good probably good amount of money, like a minor right. noble family. So that's the move he sees, and that's yeah. enough for him because he obviously doesn't need to love this woman. No, no, no. Good <laughs> on him then. Yeah, this is Edwardian England. Love doesn't matter at all. And she is waiting oh. around, dude. She's like oh. put the crock pot on. She's just waiting there, like Guy Fieri. Like, what does she have to do? She just has to wait. It's an easy job. She's yeah. waiting for Douglas, I guess. Yeah. That's, that's what her all this waiting has been about. And then they she should've... started to do the Dougie. Warmans and waiting. <laughs> Douglasing over to the Roy's. Douglas! So everyone who knew or was friendly with Haig was pretty shocked. Um, he was such a conservative person. They didn't think he'd ever do something so rash. 
Uh, but here's what Haig said of his engagement. Quote, uh, I made up my own mind on more important problems than that of my own marriage in much less time. Not sure what he means by that. Mm. <laughs> so I guess there are many more important things than his marriage. So I guess that's why it was so quick. I mean, Travis just said it. Edwardian England, no love. Doesn't matter. Nah. It's just who you're yeah. sitting next to on the bus, basically. <laughs> right. I mean, and this was during a golf trip. So he's probably like, oh, I figured it out. The ball goes She's in like the a... hole. Yeah. And I just have all these ladies in waiting. I got to put it in one of the moles. Like, is she the queen's caddy? I'm wondering also. And yeah. he's just like, <laughs> carry my bag. some bags. So. <laughs> so I said, I don't know if they met, um, but they did know of each other. At least Dorothy knew of Hague um, because her brother <clears throat> had served under him in South Africa. Uh, in one letter that she wrote, um, I forget to who, it's, she said, um, it is a curious thing that neither my sister nor I knew Colonel Hague although he commanded my brother's regiment. But we were given to understand that he was rather a woman hater. So that's just, you know, definitely want to marry that guy. Yeah, but this is also, I mean, we're going into the 20th century. This is also when they used to have, like, the He-Man woman haters clubs and shit like that, when it's just like, we hate women, we're married to them. Ah! Oh! <laughs> Yeah. Like that was that I was a line was of, in that club. That was a line of comedy. Like we're married to women and we hate them until like 1980, maybe. Till now, <laughs> but yeah. But I mean, <laughs> till, no, actually, till, till it's the still 90s. happening right now. Well, no, no. I mean, especially, especially you know, with like, uh, like the 96 in the 50s. And, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, uh, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's we like, hate yeah. women. We're married to them. Yeah, it's like that whole, like, oh, I love your mother so much, but God damn it, women are vipers. <laughs> so the, a week later, they're married. Um, July 11th, 1905, they get married in Buckingham Palace. Uh, and before they even, um, they go to India, and then very quickly, they're back in England because Haig has been recalled for a very important position. Um, the ongoing reorganization of the army that we talked about is still going. And there's a new post created called the Director of Military Training, and Haig was chosen to be that guy. So now he is the Director of Military Training in the War Office back in England. Hmm. It was everything Haig hated about the military. It was endless meetings, it was a lot of committees, um, lots of debates, rather than anything fun where it's like, you know, out marching in the field doing the cool stuff. This is much more like sitting down doing paperwork. Right, and you well, you said he got a taste of that when he was in um, uh, Egypt, right? But or Sudan, I forgot which one. Yeah. But uh, so, so Sudan and South Africa is where he's like commanding troops in the field. Right, but, he, but has, he loves it. But he starts. He's been doing like logistics mainly, right? I mean, he yeah. had those little outings. So this is nothing new. Now it's nothing just, new, and it's yeah. it's honestly what he's good at. Right. As a military person, is like he's he wants to be the commander in the field. Like dashing and you know doing the cavalry charges, but he's not good at that, and he's way better at this like pencil pushing stuff. Well, he's got a. Uh, if he was, if he had brains, he would blunder with some typos. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Start spelling <laughs> shit wrong. Be like, ah, maybe the field is this idiot. <laughs> well, he's. Well, we know he failed his math class, and he did uh, struggle with Greek and Latin. So the typos might have been there, whether he was trying to put them in or not. He put a G in the word command. What is this? <laughs> Gamang. Gamang. 
<laughs> so Haig's primary responsibility uh, in the war office is coming up with a plan if Britain found itself engaged in a general European land war. The problem he had to solve was how could Britain, within a single year of the outbreak of war, have a force of 900,000 men ready to fight and keep them in the field for five years? That's the, that's the problem that he's facing. Um, and this is something that Haig deserves a lot of credit for. What he advocates for is the conscription and training of the entire adult male population of Britain. This is what Germany and France and Russia and Austria-Hungary had been doing for the last, like, 50 years, and he's saying it's time for Britain to do the same. Draft everybody, put them all in uniform, and send, you know, have this huge amount of reserves that we can call upon ready to fight. It's kind of a, it's a fight fire with fire tactic. You might not yes. like it, but if everyone else is doing it, you're going to have to do that. Yeah. yeah. You have to sign up these 15-year-old boys to eat nails and bread for a couple <laughs> years, learn how to do it, make their own campfire, shoot a gun, hunt a deer. That's safety, one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was never... This has been common practice in Europe, but it had never been done in Britain, mostly because, one, they're the most powerful nation in the world. They feel like they don't need to. Two, they're an island nation, so they actually don't need to. And then three, they also have the most powerful navy in the world, which is what they need rather than a big land army. But Haig's saying, no, we should also have the big land army. Um, now, his plan is not fully implemented, but many aspects of it are. Uh, Parliament passages, passes the Territorial and Reserve Forces Act in 1907, and it creates a small British reserve army, uh, smaller than the one Haig wanted, and it also reorganized all of the Dominion forces um, into one, like, command structure, basically. So it used to be like, there was a Canadian command structure, then there was an Australian one, then there was a New Zealand one. He kind of reorganizes it into just the Dominion forces. Right. Well, we got a whole empire here. We might as well just run it, as opposed to all let all them run it. As well. <laughs> Um, and the reserve army is what's going to be called the territorial army. So it's basically like reserves are brought up, trained for a few years, inactive duty for two, and then reserve duty for five, and then like extended reserve duty five years after that. Um, extended reserve so like you, duty. Yeah. So it's like the way it worked back then was you do active duty for extent, whatever the time frame was. Then you were in the reserves where it's like once every year. You'd go away to boot camp for two weeks again and hang out with your boys. And then there's the extended reserves, which is like once every three years, you'd go back to boot camp. And like those, you know, so then if there's ever an outbreak of war, you have this huge population that's already been trained that you can just immediately send out there. Right. That sounds like uh, the design of a He-Man woman hater. <laughs> Got to get away from that family real quick. Yeah. Come on out. Let's out, get the men all the together. Yeah. Climb this rope. At the top well, of it, there is a cold beer for ye. I think we need this reserve system, but to deal with stray cats, like to pet them. We should have reserve people in reserve waiting to pet cats that we find on the street. And then, you know, they can go and hang out with dogs for maybe a couple of years, and then they got to come back and pet cats again. There's part of me that doesn't know how to say this in any other way to you, Travis. Shut up. <laughs> That's the no. worst idea. No, that's, that's a the smart worst idea. idea. You've talked about all kinds of bad ideas on the show. That's the worst part. You've talked about decorating your your foreskin with shrimps and stuff like that. This is much worse. I don't know. I don't think that might be important. 
Connor, I'm, please continue. I'm more inclined for the um the shrimp than the the cat petting reserves, but uh, all right. Anyway, all right. <laughs> Good uh, thing so I'm not a Douglas. <laughs> so two years after their marriage, uh, Doris gives birth to Hague's and hers first child. Uh, baby Alexandra is born in the presence of her namesake, Queen Alexandra. Just to kind of show you the social circles Haig is still running in. Um, and Queen Alexandra is also the godmother of the baby. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Haig also gets a new little promotion. Uh, the territorial army is starting to take shape, and he goes from director of military training to being the director of staff at the war office. Um, just, I don't know. Another little, like, side promotion type of thing. I feel like they could probably make a very good, like, office spinoff of just Haig doing Haig things in, like, military, you know. What, he's like a Michael Scott? Yeah, yeah. he's, like, bumbling along trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Not very good at his job, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, we also get more confirmation of Haig's unwavering belief in the usefulness of cavalry and the cavalry charge. Uh, in one report written around this time, he says, Occasions for charging will be few, but they occur, and the results from such action will be immense. The mounted attack, therefore, must always be our ideal, our final objective. Another point in favor of the attacking cavalry is that the small bore bullet does not stop a horse. Yeah, so he's like, guys, don't worry. Twenty-two caliber bullets can't stop horses. N never mind the fact that all the rifles that the Germans have are three oh eight. But sure. Yeah, I'll also be starting a new division. We're trying to find seahorses big enough so we can ride around <laughs> the oceans and protect our precious isle. <laughs> that sounds like a cool job. I think Haig would have done that. Haig would have loved that. I think. Yeah. Have you seen Go these fucking things? They're like this yeah. big. They look like horses, just like them. <laughs> we just need to make them bigger. We got to feed them more. They've yeah. got to be down there. They got big squid. We can find big horse. Come on, maybe we'll get smaller guys on it. But they're British guys, so they're tough and they're like sucker, like little wee men. <laughs> oh man, I would love to see Haig riding a seahorse. <laughs> Maybe that will be the art. <laughs> <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> so Douglas makes a strange career choice around this time. Um, he accepts what is a lateral move to leave the war office for where else but back to India for, I think, the fourth time in this story. Now he is going as the chief of staff to the commander-in-chief of India, um, who is no longer Kitchener. It's now General Sir Garrett O'More Crea. Um, Stranger even more is that he leaves behind Dorothy and their two children that are under two years old. So Higgs like, uh, I gotta go back to India. You stay here with the kids. Uh, so I mean, what you've been saying the whole time, he man woman hater. Yeah, but yeah, also they're gonna, they're gonna get poo poo diarrhea disease if they come. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> don't, honestly, you don't I, want them getting poo poo diarrhea. If I had precious little white babies back then, I would not be bringing them over there. Yeah, be like, <laughs> you get sunburnt stepped on by elephant they don't know how to handle these ganges yeah, your skin is gonna turn into like like silk and then you're just gonna like get drippy and ugh. it's worth looking back on Haig's career until this point um so prior to the boer war he was just an ordinary captain pretty unremarkable and within an 11 year period he is now among the five to ten most powerful people in the british army 
Um, he had advanced mostly through his social connections. Um, at one point, remember, he had bribed a general, Sir, Doug, uh, Sir John French, to get the job in the um, Boer War. And then he's hanging out with the king and queen, and now he is, again, one of the ten most powerful generals in... Not generals, just people in the entire British army. One fellow officer commented on Haig's meteoric rise, quote, I would rather have Haig's luck than a license to steal horses. <laughs> That's really weird to just say uh, that's the other thing that would be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> right. just steal, steal horses. horses. Like, what about a million pounds? Yeah, yeah. what about something <laughs> what about that people like, gave a shit about? Or like endless free boots. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about our boy Winnie? Is he up there? Winnie, Winnie the Winnie the Churchill. Uh, Winnie by this point is in government. He's like a um, minister, just oh, like. So um, so Not he's PM, tapped out of the like, military. He's just like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna yeah. Go. He yeah. like finished the Boer War and is like, sweet. Now I can start my political career. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so Higgs back in India. This is 1909. Um, he creates some plans that will be instrumental in the coming years, um, where the Indian Army would be mobilized and used in Europe in the event of a general European war. So basically, he's the one who's like, guys, we have this huge population of Indian people. Why don't we send them to fight our wars in Europe? And everyone's like, this is brilliant. How did we not think of this before? And now, so and now you have all the, the, uh, the people in England be like, why do we have all these Indian people here? God damn it. <laughs> Maybe I'll owe them one. <laughs> they did bring them curry, which is like the English national dish. This is true, but like... Yeah. Sincerely, the only reason Brexit happened is because of all the Indians, Pakistanis, and Poland, Polish people there. Yeah. It's really the Poles, let's be real. Yeah. It's the Poles that caused Brexit. <laughs> yeah, you think so? Is it, is it really yeah. the Poles? I thought it was the yeah, Pakistanis. Yeah, because they, they knew, you know, the Indian Pakistani people, they're still coming, Brexit or no. The Poles, though, <laughs> yeah. can keep yeah. them away. God damn it, they're going to start businesses. Fucking yeah. real they're going to be successful people. Damn. They're going to come over here with <laughs> their father's lawnmowers. They're going to bring us more flavorful sausage. <laughs> Have, has They're anyone ever eaten our food up? Well, Polish food. It's like pierogies and um, it's like Kielbasa. Ukrainian foods and stuff like that. It's all it's all the same, right? Yeah, Just like potatoes and yeah. bland cheeses. Taquitos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> taquitos, taquitos, yeah. <laughs> so Hig is once again... Once he gets a new job, it also seems like he's looking for the next job immediately because within 18 months of arriving in India, he's already planning his return back to England. Um, he wants this job that would be commander of the Aldershot garrison, which uh, is the home base for the British army in Britain. And so he gets that job. And within 18 months of going to India, he's already back in England. Uh, he takes over for an infantry officer, uh, a man named... Major General Sir Horace Smith Dorian, who's going to come up again. And Smith Dorian had widely recognized cavalry charges are useless. Uh, he hated cavalry officers. He felt that they spent most of their time practicing lance and saber charges at straw dummies and were more focused on polishing their boots than actually fighting. Uh, and now Haig is very much like the prototypical cavalry officers taking over from Smith Dorian. So is he so, like the opposite of uh, I, I I'm viewing this as he's extreme of one position like he hates horse people 
or he loves yeah he is a horse person and loves horses and doesn't see any need to blow their limbs off in battle <laughs> he's like i love horses so much that we need to stop using them like exactly we can't or it's the other one like we're just like ah, i hate horse girls you know it could have been one or the other i don't know all right sad. I, I don't know if you I'm came across like... that if, if there was a diary entry from this man talking about how he, uh, his feelings story, he actually horse. started my little pony so i think we know where we can uh, go with oh, cool. <laughs> awesome hell yeah yeah that's pretty sick that's hot yeah <laughs> so this is january of 1912 when haig is given this position uh he's 50 years old a lieutenant general and occupying one of the highest ranks in the British Army. He is not warmly received by the 20,000 soldiers in Aldershot, mostly because they believe he'd only been given this position because he was friends with the king. And so they nicknamed Haig and his family and like all of his officers that attended him the Hindu invasion because he had just come from India, even though they're all white dudes from, in yeah. <laughs> from England. I think Haig is probably the furthest from being Hindu you can... Like, if there's a scale, he's there on opposite sides. Yeah, he's fallen off the scale. Yeah. <laughs> he's not George Harrison. Let's, like, let's get it real. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that's kind of funny, though. That may have rubbed him the wrong way. You know, it's like... He probably pissed him it, off. It's like, it's like why straight guys call each other gay. It's not because, like, being gay is bad. It's just because it's not what you are. So it gets under your skin. You know, it's not like it's not an insult. It's more of like I'm picking on you directly. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like they could have gotten a little bit more creative. Maybe call him like the Vindaloo Vandal or something. Yeah. That's great. Oh, my God. Yeah. Travis, brilliant. You would have been such a popular soldier in, in yeah. 1912. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so as I said, it's 1912 uh, in the autumn. One of Haig's first major responsibilities as the commander of the Aldershot garrison is that um, every couple of years the British Army would do these huge military maneuvers where they'd basically do war games where they'd split the army in two and do a mock war and fight it out to see who, you know, what tactics work, what tactics don't work, those types of things. So the 1912 maneuvers are taking place in East Anglia. And the operation was meant to examine how the British Army would fight, and it would lead to the biggest embarrassment of Haig's entire military career if his career were to end in 1914. So instead, his embarrassments are in the future, but this is the most embarrassing up to this point. Awesome. Two date embarrassments. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, a, that's what keeps me up at night. Yeah. <laughs> so Haig is in the command of Red Force. He is going against uh, Lieutenant General Sir James Grierson, who would be defending London with Blue Force. So Haig's role is um, an invading army trying to get to London, and Grierson is trying to fight off this invasion. So we're talking like Halo here, red versus blue. Yeah, this is, okay. this is where Halo got the idea from. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the sides are relatively equal numerically, um, just of like a couple of divisions each. They each had the same amount of cavalry. They each had the same amount of air units. And Rearson is much, much better than Haig throughout the entire thing. He uses his air support for like recon, whereas Haig barely even orders them to do anything. Um, Rearson just waxes the floor with Haig. He has total observation of everything that Haig is doing. He, um, 
And it's so bad that they end the operation like three days early because they are like, well, Red Force is destroyed at this point. If this was an actual war, Red Force would have been obliterated. And not only is this uh, really bad for Haig getting beaten by his contemporaries, um, the king and dozens of foreign military observers are there watching Haig get his ass handed to him over and over and over again. Oh, nice. Yeah. Does, it's like uh, I have a it's, question. Does, it's as if he bribed his way into this position. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> like that. I have, I have a question. Did he? Because flight was like a new thing. Did Haig yeah. think flight was just like ah, that's just a gimmick? Um, at this point, maybe he did. He does kind of come around on it, and like the the good thing about Haig as a general is when he recognizes that he doesn't know something that well, but knows that someone else knows how to do it he's good at appointing that person and then just kind of washing his hands of the matter okay. so like when in world war one I, I forget the guy's name but he basically finds a, someone who's really good with air power and is just like all right just you fucking figure it out i'm done <laughs> smart okay all right yeah that's smart so that's like hiring you know those like kids that do drone races it's like recruiting them into the army now yeah <laughs> Yeah, those are the guys we need on the yeah. on the joysticks. Yeah, yeah. We thought it was gonna be uh, the kids playing the shoot 'em ups. Turns out they're useless. Yeah, it's turns really out the turns drone out, boys. Turns out the Beyblade kids. Wow, you gotta get those kids. <laughs> he's like, they're the ones you really need to look out yeah. for. He's like, I'm I'm deciding if those are some kind of uh, Pegasus, which is a flying horse, um, <laughs> that they're using against us. Oh my god, he needed Pegasi and seahorses, and then his his dream would be complete. Yeah, if Pegasuses were real, or Pegasi are real, uh, man, he'd have been cru- he would have crushed that exercise. Yeah. He would have destroyed yeah. them. Easily. Easily. Uh, so, in trying to explain himself after this whole debacle, despite all evidence to the contrary, Haig believed he'd done a fine job, but that luck just hadn't been on his side, and it was just, oh, just, you know, the roll of the dice that is warfare, and I sadly lost. Um, so he's giving this, like, speech in the after-action report, and here's what uh, one of his close subordinates reported. Haig, quote, to the, to the dismay of his staff, attempted to improv the whole ordeal. In the effort, he became totally unintelligible and unbearably dull. The university dignitaries soon fell fast asleep. Haig's friends became more and more uncomfortable, and only Haig himself seemed totally unconscious of his failure. A listener without other and deeper knowledge of the ability and personality of the Aldershot Commander-in-Chief could not have left the conference but with the impression that Haig had neither ability nor military learning. (laughs) Fortunately, the men in responsible positions knew better. I don't know if I'd say fortunately in that regard. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Well, so, yeah. So, but he's basically explaining himself and is putting everyone to sleep in his attempts to explain why he did what he did. Right. And just seems like he's an idiot. Okay. So, improv is a skill. We know that. Um, also, people who take improv too seriously need to be shot. It's really <laughs> a middle ground. Uh, so, take that away from this. Also, um, I think it's great that he did that. Like, it really shows a lot of character that he went up to explain himself in a battle. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of just walking away and be like, oh, man, I got to rethink that one. I don't want to talk <laughs> about this. I need to make a speech about my failure. Yes, yeah. and we sent the men to build sandcastles in Squadron 2, 
Uh, yes, and we also <laughs> had the planes come, and they were really dropping sausages on the people. And oh, my God. You, I, we, I'm, we delivering a a mash. I'm delivering a thousand gerbils right now, and the elevator stopped working. <laughs> <laughs> so Haig is due a small piece of credit, because um, it's at Eldershot that he begins to advocate for more independent thinking among um, the non-commissioned officers. That's like the sergeants, corporals, those guys, like squad leaders. Um, he's basically saying, you know, we need to, like, give overall objectives to the commanders and then trust that our NCOs can carry it out on the field. Which is, you know, that's just good military tactician stuff. Um, but that's not what he's going to do in practice. So we don't know why he would advocate for all this and then in practice kind of goes against it, as we'll see. So at this point in 1912, uh, all of Europe is aware that there's a war coming where France, Russia, and Britain are on one side, and Germany and Austria-Hungary on the other. The only questions are going to be, when will it start, and who's going to be the one to start it? Uh, there were a few moments where it seemed like it could have happened before, um, but by chance, Douglas is in France observing French army exercises when he gets word that the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary was just assassinated in Sarajevo in July of 1914. Bam! So he's in France when this happens, um, and a huge part of all of the French war plans were we need the British army on our left flank. So Haig is like, oh shit, we gotta, it's, it's almost time to shine. Um, so this whole period is called the July Crisis, where they're trying to figure out, are they going to go to war or are they not going to go to war? Haig thinks that the politicians are going to avert the war as they had previously, um, but it's on July 29th, word gets to Haig and the War Office that the garrisons should begin a precautionary period, which is the first stage of full mobilization. Um, four days later, Germany declares war on France, and the war's on. War's on because a man got a sandwich and killed another man. <laughs> is that true? Right. Is that true that, like, the guy, I know the guy, like, f botched the initial attempt. Yeah. He was just getting a sandwich. Yeah, he and got, that's a, what gave he got a, separate... a sandwich, and the man was rolling on by the boulevard. Oh, man. It's, it's even crazy. So there are like 10 to 15 assassins in Sarajevo. <sighs> One of them throws a grenade, but it doesn't detonate. So they like, they drive, or no, it detonates, but it doesn't kill uh, the Archduke. He gets away. And then they drive like down a different route and one of the assassins is waiting in a cafe there and is like, oh shit, that's, the, that's him. Like, I thought we blew our chance earlier. And then the car got stuck on that street. Yeah. <laughs> okay, hold so on. So not only did like they not plan to go down this street where this guy was sitting in a cafe that he didn't plan to be sitting in, then the car broke down there. Yeah. And so that's when Princep just ran out and fired like five bullets into the car. Okay. Um, and I don't want to go on a crazy tangent or make this not about Haig. But what was so inflammatory about Ferdinand? All right, so... We can take this tangent. We got, we got some time. And this is... You could argue a billion different things. He wasn't that important. He was next in line to be the emperor of Austria-Hungary. Okay. No one really hated him. He was kind of just seen as like a middle-of-the-road reformer type even. Like yeah. He's, so that was like the one thing was Austria-Hungary was like, well, this was your one champion and now you killed him. But really... The reason the war happened is because everybody wanted the war to happen. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. Okay. 
It was like it was like look, Saddam Hussein isn't amassing uh you know, an army on Saudi Arabia, but we just wanted this to happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? All right. Okay. It's like so- anyone could have stopped the war. So if if the day after he was assassinated, if Austria-Hungary goes, we're declaring war on Serbia, no one would have jumped in at all. But instead, Austria-Hungary was like, we're going to wait a while. And then we're going to ask Germany if they'll help us. And Germany is like, yeah, sure, we'll help you if, if you go to war. And then Russia says, because now it's like, once enough time passed, everyone's like, well, you should have punished Serbia already. So the fact that you're waiting is pissing everyone off. So then Russia's like, well, if you invade Serbia now, we'll go to war. And if that happens, then that means Germany is going to declare war on Russia. But that also means that France will declare war on Germany. And then it triggers all of these things that yeah. cause a war to it's, happen. It's very okay. much like what's happening right now with Russia and Ukraine. Where it's like, oh, you know, if you go over there, then, then you know, we're, NATO's going to come after you. But, like, China's still on the fence. They might hang out with you because you got oil. Like, you know what I mean? It's all that. Shit gets oh, yeah. roped up together, you know? And I was then, under the impression this is just all money laundering over there. That's why no one's actually <laughs> acting. I mean, that's what it was back then, too. You had a lot of people moving money around and treasures and shit right. like that. Everyone's, everything's connected that way. Are you trying yeah, to say that these guys were up to something no good? Oh, they were up to no good. Okay. And then and the, another reason that the war happens is, like, so once all this... <laughs> once the tensions are like reaching this boiling point the military in every single country is going to like the the um civil government and is saying like look you might not want a war but if they want it and we're not ready for it then we're gonna loot we're gonna get swamped like they'll just invade and we won't be ready for the invasion so it's almost like the plans the peacetime plans guaranteed that a war would happen in a way because they were shitty peacetime plans yeah, because yeah. it's like Germany's peacetime plan is if we go to war with Russia, we invade France. Amazing. That was their plan. It was like, if, if we go to war with Russia, that means we're eventually going to have to fight France. So we should start by knocking France out of the war, which also means invading Belgium, which also means the British who guarantee Belgian neutrality will also probably declare war on us. Right, and also... If, if none of it makes sense. Okay. If you've only read about World War I or World War II in a U.S. history textbook, the U.S. had no plans of going over there. We were fighting against Mexico at the time, and we were just like, oh, yeah, that means that we could sell our guns to different people on both sides. Sick. Yep. Well, you, the U.S. history, it's, like, it's so hyper-focused on World War II because the people writing the fucking books that we were reading were like participants of that time. Yeah. So, but also, it, you know, their dads were fighting in the war or they were, or they themselves were fighting the war and they just like hyper focused on that and the Holocaust and like, so like, yes, being in New York, like all you learned about was World War II. Well, yeah, but yeah. you also hear that people like two time world champ USA. Yeah. And then <laughs> they like, can't even what? say anything else about World War One. All they yeah. know is that America won it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, God bless. Uh, we may have w- w- not won Vietnam, but we sure as hell bombed the hell out of Cambodia for some reason. <laughs> That's so. right. Yeah. We never it's leave the, without a stink. It's the effort that matters. We handed out yeah. orange slices in the, in the mode of landmines. <laughs> Amazing. I'm a huge fan of us. Let's go, Agent Connor. orange slices. 
Back yeah. to our ancestors of the English. All right, so back to our yeah. ancestors who are definitely not as dumb as we are. Um, <laughs> so Germany declares war on France. They then issue an ultimatum to Belgium, basically saying, give over your sovereignty, let our army march through Belgium unopposed, and we'll all be hunky-dory. And Belgium says, fuck that. They ask Britain, you know, are you going to come to war to protect us? Britain says yes. It kind of shocked um, some of the German high command who thought that the British wouldn't even bother to guarantee. They're like, who, you, you care about Belgium this much? Just like, let us beat the French. You hate the French. Come on. But Britain did. Hmm. So on midnight of August 4th, the war office telegraphs Hague with the following line. Very simple. War has broken out with Germany. Um, now, Haig, to his credit, is one of the few people, along with his old mentor, Lord Kitchener, that predicted the war is going to be a long, uh, drawn-out affair. Most people on both sides are saying this war will be over in four months, five months. That's just the nature of what European wars had been for the last hundred years at this point, so that's what they thought was going to happen again. Um, Haig's main concern was that the territorial army is going to be destroyed in this early phase of the war and would lose a bunch of valuable vet veterans. Um, and that exact fear would come to pass. Um, let's see. So Haig's offered solution. His proposal to like pre prevent this uh, would have guaranteed a very quick victory if the British office had gone through with it. It would have been a quick victory for the Germans, but a quick victory nonetheless. Because oh, what okay. Haig wanted was, let's delay the deployment of the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, um, so that we can have more soldiers called up, called back from the reserves, trained up, and then we can ship them in from India, from Australia, from Canada, and then once we have this great big army, then we'll go to France. If they had done that, Germany would have taken Paris within a month. So maybe they should have, and then the world would have been a better place today. But they didn't. Wait, you telling me you telling me the world would be a better place if I didn't get baguettes, cigarettes, and floppy hats in Paris, and I got bratwurst instead in Paris? Yes. Oh, sock if Germany blue. wins, if Germany wins World War One in September of 1914, then we don't get World War Two, and we probably don't get the Russian Revolution. We don't get the Holocaust. We don't get the. British Empire collapsing in the Middle East and turning into what it is now. Wait, Connor, 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 wait, 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 stop there. You just said we wouldn't get the Holocaust if Germany got even more victories? If they didn't lose World War One, yeah. We you think so? There were, you, yeah, because yeah. there were Jews in the German high command. Well, I don't it's know. It's the maybe, loss of World War One that unleashes all this anti-everything sentiment. Spoilers, I'm doing all this research on Wagner now. And uh, there is a lot of anti-Semitism happening. I'm oh, just thinking it would a take a different form. It would be a lot of, uh, it might be later. It might be like now. It might be today. Yeah. It might but be. You, you, wouldn't see, you wouldn't have seen the Russian Revolution either. So you wouldn't have had the Soviet Union. And well, you know what? The whole world's different. You know what wow. we would have. Maybe it's not better. This is very contrarian. This is very contrarian. We would have lost you. culture. We would have lost a, a glass pyramid where they keep all the pa fancy paintings and then gentlemen that are upset about the, the trees throw soup at them. <laughs> there's, oh, um, there's one British historian I like who 
he was talking about this time of the war where it's like, is Britain going to go to war or like to defend Belgium or not? And he said what they should have done was gone to war against France. <laughs> he said we should have joined the Germans, beat the French finally once and for all, and then the world would be safer for democracy. The film wouldn't have been so bad in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it is uh, pretty crazy, though. I mean, I, I follow a few, um, not to jump kind of too far ahead, but I follow a few YouTubers that are like um, metal detectors and like amateur archaeologists for World War One or World War Two, and the same battles are fought in the same places, and it's like literally layers of yeah. you know here's layers World War One or here's World War Two, and then here's World War One. Like yeah. you know, we could have just let them have it. it Is good, that like a setting you could do on the detector, like where it's just like well you can age something in the ground because you know how like those detectors you can have them detect certain metals like in spectrums yeah is it are they able to because of yet metals used initially this was a joke and now i'm actually curious um because of the metals used from different wars are they able to pick up certain i mean sometimes because they used a lot um like so they were still using like iron and stuff in a lot of their equipment in world war one and not like the higher carbon steel. Right. So, yeah, you could, but, you could. But, I mean, they could basically, like, dig something up and be like, oh, this is World War One." You know what I mean? Because No, of, but a lot of, a lot of like. De like, detecting is, like, walking around and looking at the meter and being like, is this even worth my time? Uh, but, I mean, these guys, they, they're they're more like archaeologists. They, like, lay out, like, a plot and actually, like, dig down and... Oh, gotcha. Like, document. Okay. Yeah, they, and they know where they're looking. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, we can debate these counterfactuals all day. Um... I think it would have been fascinating to see the world if Britain either stays out of the war or joins Germany. <laughs> um, now, Haldane had been the Secretary of State for War, and within four days of the war breaking out, he was replaced by none other than our old friend, Lord Kitchener. We're going to have to do a full Kitchener one one day, because he's just pops up everywhere. Sure. Yeah. So now Kitchener's in, uh, he's in the cabinet, and they uh, need to appoint a commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force. They choose Haig's other old friend, Sir John French. So this is going to get confusing at times. The commander of the British Army is named French. <laughs> and he hates French people. <laughs> and he French kisses Haig. Yeah, maybe, maybe, <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> John French and Kitchener do not get along. Uh, John French is one of those who believes the war is going to be over very quickly. Kitchener believes it's going to take a long time. So they each have very opposing viewpoints on how the BEF should be used. French is like, well, no, let's strike while the iron's hot. Uh, and Kitchener's like, no, 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 this is going to be a long war. Do not lose the few small army that we have. Um, Haig had his doubts about French, despite being an old friend of his. He thought he was unfit for the role of commander-in-chief. He would. Yeah. Now, Haig, at this point, was unlikely to be chosen as commander-in-chief. Um, he instead is going to be chosen to lead um, the 1st Army Corps. Wait, hold on. Hold for research. I, I, I always thought that that should be, like, a requirement if you're going to go to war. Like, it should be the style of, like, old Europe. Where, like, the president or the king has to be on the front lines. Has to ride out there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, in this, this is, like, the last war where you do see 
like heads of state near the front lines at times. Okay. Um, and a lot, and World War One is also the last time you ever see that, like the sons of politicians and royalty and like rich people are not only in the army but like serving on the front lines. Right. Like, and now a bunch of the now commanders in this they're war, forgetting yeah. their laptops and little yeah now we're looking shops. for their laptops yeah. to see what kind of porn they are into now yeah. they're like don't say, don't start war we need all those young men for blood boys oh <laughs> apparently there's there's pornography on here uh, the type of pornography that's about uh insider trading <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that gets them so hard <laughs> now um you might be wondering, why is General Grierson, the guy who kicked Haig's ass two years ago in the British maneuvers, what's he up to? Well, he's on his way to France when he dies of an aneurysm on a troop ship. Damn! So he's out. <laughs> Dude, we got one of those brain soldiers in you, fucking with yeah. things. <laughs> so if Grierson had lived, we might not have ever heard of Haig unless you're like a big World War One junkie and know all of like the small, gen the major generals in the war. So instead... Uh, it kind of clears the path for Haig in the future because Grierson dies of an aneurysm. <laughs> yeah, coming from so, uh, where I learned school stuff, I don't know anything about World War One. This is really a first. Everything's a first. <laughs> All right, well, get ready because we're about to dive deep into the opening of the war, which kind of dictates how the rest of it will go. So the BEF is tasked with occupying the left flank of the French army. So if you think, if you can picture a map in your head, the left flank is like northern France near Bel the Belgian border. Um, the rest of the Brit French army is at the border with Germany, obviously. So the British are responsible for guarding the flank facing Belgium, and unknown to basically everybody at the time is that the German offensive called for the majority of their troops to go right through Belgium, and it would take them directly into the path of the British Expeditionary Force. Ooh. Now, despite their problems that we talked about in the Boer War, uh, the BEF is still by far the most experienced of any of the armies in August 1914. Um, these are lifelong soldiers, not just reservists, which is what the French and German armies were. Um, they had fought in the Boer War, they'd fought in the River War, they'd fought in conflicts in India, they'd fought in a hundred other minor skirmishes that we'll never know about in the British Empire. It's also the smallest. Um, the initial BEF force that crosses the channel is 160,000 men. To put that in, that's a big number, right? Yeah. To put that into perspective, though, Germany is invading France and Belgium with 2 million men, and the French are defending it with another 1.7 million. So the BEF is basically a rounding error in the Western Front armies. Yeah, that's not going to do much. These are the biggest numbers. I mean, I, I mean, it's kind of hard with ancient battles. They always inflate yeah. things. But these are the biggest numbers in modern history. Am I correct, right? The, the only thing that will surpass this will be, like, the climax of World War II on the Eastern Front. Where in, like, right, the but Russians, up until this point. Yeah, but up this until this the point, largest, far yeah. and away, the yeah. largest armies ever to take the field um, by far. Um, their BEF is also not very well equipped. So the entire BEF, all 160,000 of them, have a total of 150 Maxim machine guns. Uh, I don't know the math on that, but not very many machine guns per soldier. Or, uh, the Germans, with their 2 million men, had 12,000 machine guns. Mm. So almost 100 times the amount of machine guns that the British did. 
again, to give Haig a little bit of credit, he's one of the few British officers that had been arguing for a long time for more machine guns. Um, so we can't really blame that one on Haig. But he was also like in the same package asking for more horses, correct? Yes, that's so, that's the thing. It's like he's just this weird conundrum of hypocritical takes. <laughs> he probably had someone whispering in his ear like, look, you're asking for like this big bump in equipment. Maybe just not have the horses in there. Uh, we can push through some of these machine guns. And he's like, yeah, like what? What are you gonna do with a machine gun if you're not riding a horse whilst using it? <laughs> Wait, I think we've come across a bigger conspiracy here, though, because so we've got Haig, who's a horse boy. Mm -hmm. He loves horses. We got Krupp, who's also a horse boy and smells their poop. Yeah, the horses did World War One. That's right. Well, this is also, like, right now is Krupp's shining moment. This is yeah. when they're destroying those big Belgian forts. Yeah. All that horse shit's finally coming he, home to roost. And they're both like, oh, horse, oh, horse, oh, horse. Let's try these big dumb guns out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so August 6th, two days after war is declared, um, the British War Council approves the deployment of five divisions total. Uh, it's 18,000 men per division. Haig is given the command of First Corps, as I said, um, so that's two divisions to a corps. Um, and he's in France by August 15th, just in time for the greatest slaughter of human life ever seen in Europe, or maybe even the whole world. So the British and French, uh, before the war, did not figure out how to cooperate during a war. They never had any formal plans, it was always just, well, the British are on the left flank and they'll do our, their own thing as we fight the Germans. And the British plan was, we'll be on the left flank and the French will do their own thing fighting the Germans. They never really had gotten along in all of history before this point. So. Correct. <laughs> yeah, and they never even really figured it out. Uh, they won't figure it out for another four years. So if you know World, obviously we know World War II a little bit better. Everyone knows Dwight D. Eisenhower. He's the command, Allied commander. So he's the not chief. only in charge of like American military, but he's also in charge of the British and the French and all the other allied forces so that they can coordinate everything. Right. There is no supreme allied commander in World War I until the last four months of the war. So the whole time, it's just two different armies working, trying to work together, even though they don't really like each other that much. Don't yeah. even speak and the doing, same language. Yeah. It, doing different things. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Tom, you say they don't speak the same language. It's understandable for the troops, you know, the rank and file to not speak the same language. Sir John French does not speak French, so that's, you know, he's always having to go through a translator. And then the French commander uh, doesn't speak English either, so they're always having to go through translators the whole time. Yeah, that's not good. You, no. <laughs> you, you need to be able to, like, sit down and have a drink with someone. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and what I would say, what I truly would say, is that it's on the French to learn English. Um, it's not on us to learn that stupid gobbledygook language. I think they both should have used the lingua franca and used Farsi. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, they should have just learned, isn't uh, Dutch basically just uh, French and English combined? With yeah. With like, German? Like right, Belgian, yeah. yeah. I think it's even more gross. Flemish. <laughs> Flemish, yeah. yeah. They, they also learned Welsh, actually. Forget it. Let's... Yeah. Even though, even though the neighbors right there are just like, ah, that's, that's a brutal language. We're both going to need to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, that's like, so, I think that's like, hello. Yochambach. <laughs> yeah, that's a gross language. I think a lot of languages need to be wiped off the face of the planet. Big fan of that. <laughs> if I, I don't even care what language it is. As long as we're all speaking one, I'm fine with it. Yeah, I care. It, it can't be French. It absolutely cannot be French. There That's are too many. Uh, just too eliminate many... French. Anything else is okay. I think we should all just go back to Esperanto. That was a smart idea. What? Esperanto, the international language. I have no idea what that is. You never heard of that? Nah, dude. I fucking went oh, to was school that like here. A bunch of computer geeks in the '60s came up with. I think it was a, little, like a universal I, language. I think it was a little bit earlier than the '60s, but yeah, it was like. It was a yeah language that was supposed to be like the international language that had like romance languages in there, English, German, all written it's, in Chinese characters. Like you can you can still learn it on Duolingo. I don't know why because uh, no quick, one speaks it. Uh, just a suggestion. I don't want to hold. I don't want to keep talking about this, but uh, I would suggest English. It's a <laughs> fine language. It's pretty dumb to be honest. It is. But. It is basically the. The most common language internationally now it, it is because like they say oh yeah mandarin is like the number one language on the face of the planet guess what it's a bunch of people living in trash cans speaking it they're not like d doing commerce like those numbers don't make sense but you travel yeah. to other places you go to south korea people speak english because they know it's cool and it has leather jackets attached to it okay <laughs> the leather jackets are key yeah <laughs> anyway uh english let's go yeah yeah. Right, also, so this podcast is in English, okay? <laughs> How are we supposed to grow the audience if we're advocating for languages that don't even... They, they wouldn't be able to understand the jokes and the nuances. Yeah. All right, back to August 1914. Um, so the fighting, even though the war was declared in early August, the fighting still hasn't kicked off yet. Everyone's still mobilizing, moving their troops around. Um, and military doctrine throughout all of Europe is the is attack, attack, attack. That's all that matters. Like, if you're the f more first one there and you are taking the initiative, that's how you win the war. In hindsight, if they had just stayed and dug trenches right from the beginning, they might have smashed the German advance and been able to end the war quickly. But if Haig had proposed that, if anyone had proposed that, they would have been either fired or, like, thrown in jail for treason. So that's never going to happen. We can't, you know, apply the hindsight to these guys at this point. Yet. Yeah, that's that's the key. Well, yeah. Um, but even those who believed that a long war was coming um, could not have envisioned what was about to happen in the middle of August. So the fighting begins with the Battle of the Frontiers. This is all along the German-French-Luxembourg-Belgian border when the German and French um, armies finally come into contact. It's horrific. It's really bad. Uh, we don't have to talk about it for too long, but basically lots and lots of people die because no one knows just how powerful artillery and machine guns are until you can actually put them into practice. So you have the French who are at this point wearing white gloves, blue jackets, and bright red pants marching in column or like, you know, big, long, drawn out lines over open fields against German machine guns and artillery positions. <laughs> you also have the Germans doing the same thing in other sectors, but the French are the ones who take it the worst. What color, they didn't realize... what, what color were the French? I mean, uh, the, the Germans wearing? See, the Germans were the only smart ones at this point. The Germans are wearing uh, what's called Feldgrau or Field Gray. 
okay. so they're in like these like doled out gray uniforms they had been wearing prussian blue up until like 1904 and then they kind of realized no we can do a little camouflage if we just wear this gray bland drab uniform cool. um the british had already switched to khaki so they aren't wearing red coats anymore <sighs> but the french alone <laughs> are in White gloves, blue blue pants. Yeah, if you like, look up French cavalry in World War One. It it's hard to tell the difference between French cavalry in World War One and Napoleonic cavalry in yeah. eighteen twelve. And wow. some of them are wearing these like giant like like uh, officer big, caps with like leopard hats. skin yeah. and shit on them. It's like oh, also I should add, not a single person in any army at this point is wearing a helmet. Yes, none of them. They're all wearing cloth caps well i mean you know between us boys his helmets are pretty gay <laughs> dude you do you ride your uh scooter with a helmet no yeah. dude tony hawk he rides one you know what he's kind of lame <laughs> jk so he's at, the, sick. at the battle of the frontiers um the action finally kicks off on august 22nd alone the french army suffers 70,000 casualties oh. including 22,000 dead in one day buy houses in france they are <laughs> available they are yeah. ready to purchase yes um so oh just we're going to talk about these a lot uh just to remind everyone casualties is dead wounded or missing um there's not a lot of missing that doesn't mean dead in World War One. So really, it's dead or wounded. And well, wounded could mean anything from, like, you have a big gash in your arm that heals in a month to you no longer have legs at all. You're a vegetable. Well, I feel like as yeah. the war goes on, casualties does go mean missing because you've got a lot of, like, people, especially in Russian and uh, the Germans, just deserting. Yeah, later on. Um, but yeah. on the Western Front, if you're missing, it means you turned into a pink mist when the shell yeah, hit your crater. So true. you're missing because there's nothing to find anymore. Right. But also yeah. you have the He-Man woman haters who are like, yeah, I'm going to war, babe. I'll see you later. Yeah. Take care of those six kids I pumped in you. And they're like, <laughs> I'm out of here. I'm taking the fucking I'm air out. train. I'm out of I'm going to go live in Epcot. See <laughs> So we've been talking about the BEF, uh, British Expeditionary Force, which is, you know, the whole British Army. Um, the Germans and the French each have multiple armies in the field. So there's, like, the German 1st through 7th Army on the Western Front, the French 1st through 5th Army. Uh, and the British are snuggled right along next to the French 5th Army, commanded by General Lanrezic. Um, and the 5th Army is being driven back even before the BEF can get there. So now the British is... Uh, forces all alone in Belgium um, no one guarding their flanks no one and it's just the whole German army coming straight at them uh, they put up a valiant defense at the city of Mons um, but then by August 24th they are in full hail retreat um, Haig is leading them on like rear guard actions you know like retreat to this line and then the next day it's like oh shit fall even further back and they're just running back to Paris at this point um, Sir John French, commander of the BF, he is saying we should retreat beyond Paris because things are so bad, or maybe we should send the BEF home to rest and recuperate and just leave the French to their fate. Um, Kitchener smacks that down. He goes, no, you need to stand and fight. So on September 5th, all along the line, the French and the BEF stop their retreat and they check the German offensive at the Marne. Um, this is the Battle of the Marne. It's a very famous moment in military history because 
it ends any chance of a quick German victory and instead ensures that we're going to have a long war um, and no one knows who can win. Great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the Germans retreat in good order. They um, fall back to a defensive line along the Aisne River, which is like the dominant high ground in all of northern France. And they are going to hold that position for the next four years without fail. Just to give away the ending a little bit. <laughs> yeah, this is a nice hill. Yeah, Hans, I'd like it up yeah. here. <laughs> Renaming it Hans Hill? Yeah. Hans Gruber <laughs> Hill. So the Battle of Frontiers ends, um, and the Battle of Marne ends, so we've been fighting for about a month. The Germans and French had each suffered about 300,000 casualties in one month of fighting. Uh, the French had suffered 75,000 killed in action in just one month, and that includes the 22,000 who died on a single day. Uh, Haig had been leading this retreat along 160 miles. The BEF had lost 20,000 men, which is 20% of their strength in, again, just a month of fighting. So, so I have a question. Horrific. I have a question. You mentioned last episode, you kind of hinted that he's going to be like hanging out in a chalet. At this point, he's like behind the line, just like really far back behind the line. So this is probably when he's closest to the action, just because... The opening phase is the most amount of movement. Okay. So, like, he might be close, and then it's just, like, constantly falling back. Um, there are moments where he's in a pl house, and, like, a house down the road gets shelled. So he's not completely out of danger, but um, definitely not along the front line at this point. Right. It's, like, once the... So, yeah, what we're getting to is, like, with in October, um, the BEF goes to Flanders in Belgium... This is the race to the sea to like try and find a flank. It doesn't work, and the Western Front has solidified. There are trench lines running from Switzerland all the way to the English Channel. Once that happens, Haig is at a chateau two miles behind the line at all times. Right. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, so um, 1914 comes to an end. The BEF had suffered 96,000 casualties out of the 160,000 men they'd sent to France. Um, they had, however... <laughs> Wait, what was that? <laughs> that was Harry. Oh, was Harry's that drinking water? <laughs> Harry's drinking water. He's giving me a big smile. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good water drinking, bud. The old boy you got there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the BEF, though, was constantly expanding. They're now up to 12 divisions total. Um, this is still... Uh, very small compared to the French and Germans who had like 80 to 90 divisions in total. Um, and by the end of 1914, the Germans and the French had each suffered 1 million casualties in four months of fighting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, 1914, the winter, this kind of gives everybody on both sides a chance to catch their breath and think about Sorry, he was responding to the million dead people in four months. So yeah, I mean, showing his disgust with it. His yeah. reaction yeah, dog, was late, as was mine. I forgot I was on a podcast. I was just making a face when you said that, and I didn't convey my awe to that. Dogs actually, your disgust. Yeah. He just he, he he connected with the dead, and he saw all one million in the matter of seconds. And none all of them had faces. bones for him. Yeah, yeah. Um. So. 
Haig believes that a breakthrough um, is only going to be achieved if there's an offensive along the entire front line. Um, but no one really knows what that would look like because, again, they're the trench lines at this point. This is like the classic, we're at the classic World War One, where there's dug in on one side, dug in on the other side, and just staring across no man's land at each other. Uh, he gets a small promotion. Um, he is now promoted to General in Command of First Army because the BEF has now expanded to have a First Army and a Second Army and a Third Army. So Haig is in charge of even more men. So the calendar turns to 1915, and this is very much the emblematic trench warfare of World War I. Lots of small-scale actions. Um, just living in the mud, basically. Uh, in some places, no man's land is nothing more than like 10 meters apart. So 40 feet away is the German front line, and the British and French are dug in on the other side. It's that close? I thought they were like, in, uh, like a in like some places feet it's that away. Close. 100. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Most of it is like probably like 200, 300 yards, but there are points where it's like right up against each other. That's wild. Yeah. 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 It's crazy that like. Uh, just the amount of like barbed wire and shit that like i don't know I've, i'm trying to find the statistic but there was some statistic about how many times the barbed wire used could have wrapped around the earth and it was like in the hundreds or something like yeah. that really yeah oh yeah you know what i hate well, when people say something like uh you know uh the amount of wire used would have been stretched you could have stretched it to the moon and back i hate that because it's like no one's been to the moon like all the people who've been to the moon are dead yeah like they died. So Buzz Aldrin's still alive, right? Who's alive? Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin die? I thought he died. I th I think he died. Yeah, it was so it was more than a million miles of barbed wire laid in the Western Front, and I feel like when when you see like kind of like just basic kind of movie depictions of it, you just think of it as just like one kind of roll of barbed wire, like you'd keep a cow in. But right. it's like literally like piles and piles of barbed yeah. wire. So, so dumb. So and it's like, like on your own side, you'd have it where like you would know exactly where the gaps in the wire are. But then the obviously the other army doesn't. And then you train the machine gun on the gap so that if they ever come through, the only place they can come through, that's exactly where all the machine guns are pointed. That's a great way to kill millions of people in four months. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, so basically, um, we got this locked-in, calcified trench system by 1915. Um, and the geography of the area dictates where you could actually carry out large-scale offensives. So, in the south, uh, near the Alps, obviously it's too mountainy, too hilly, can't have lots and lots of troops there, so that's out. Um, the north at this point in Belgium, it's so muddy, it's so waterlogged all the time that it's like it would be silly to carry out offensives there. They will, eventually. Um, and then in other parts of the line, it's just like either side is either way too dug in to their position that it would be stupid to even attack those positions. So basically that leaves like four or five locations along the entire front where it actually makes sense to attack. And so they're going to attack those places over and over and over and over and over again all throughout 1915. I would hate uh, to like live around that area. That's going to be bad. Yeah, like if you're um, if you're an old like milk salesman and you're yeah. like ah so, my milk truck got bombed again ah, ah. Yeah. 
one of the weirdest things about World War One is like because it doesn't move on the Western Front because it's just in this like one same spot and like doesn't move at all throughout four years. There's just like a, an economy that springs up um, far enough away from the line where the, the fighting isn't. So like French people the, like keep immigrating to three miles away from the front lines and setting up storefronts to sell to the soldiers. So, yeah. so like there's this booming economy just behind the lines. So Tom, and then horrific death in between. Yeah, Tom, you're Pierre, Pierre the milk and garlic man. He stayed in business. He is raking in business. Well, that's good. That's that's what I would hope. I like when yeah. people make money, and I like when they make it honestly. And yeah. selling milk now, and garlic to a bunch of guys who are going to probably die anyway in mustard gas poisoning, that is an honest way to make money. Yeah. yeah. Now, the problem is, though, if you lived in the village where the front line landed, your village just evaporated from the face of the earth. <laughs> There's yeah, gotta be like one downside. You gotta yeah. think of it like back then, everyone was like a baker or a cobbler, or like they had a they had a craft. Like it's not like today where no one has any craft to speak of, and they just yeah. like type numbers into a computer or whatever. Back then, it was people who really cared about what they did. Like I'm a cobbler. I just made the perfect fucking shoe. Oh no, World War One just started. No yeah. one's feet I are even gonna feel these shoes fuckers. though. I'll make military boots. No, they're gonna bomb them out of existence. He's well, gonna get fire. I'm talking about like in the spot. Like, yeah, in you have all the people. Yeah. Like, no one, no, no, shul, no soldier is going out to, to the three mile uh, little mezzanine to buy shoes. They're buying perishables. Look, I'm just Correct? saying, and ladies, and ladies, I, which is perishables if you're a man. <laughs> um, <laughs> but hold on, Travis. But the guys on the line who are dealing with this, like. They have. They are the baker who's been perfecting an apple pie for the better part of eighty years. And it's just like the best pie. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's like wars happening on this line. You're shot. So your whole life, not only like, not only do you have to move, but everything you cared about is gone, and everyone's got to poo poo on you. Um, it's got to be heartbreaking to like have lived on those lines, um, especially back then. Because like, you, how many people work remote that you know? most of them yeah yeah exactly so it's just like oh shit well huntington is uh getting kind of pricey i'm gonna move out of it eventually yeah like if war happened here i'd be like ah oh, that kind of sucks that i don't have to pay those taxes anymore <laughs> now, see the way i think about it is like buying uh or building your house or your village along the french border is like buying beachfront property in miami that shit is gonna sink and get exploded yeah. because for hundreds and hundreds of years, battles have been fought along those borders. I had no idea you hated Puerto Ricans that much, but <laughs> it's or it Long depends. Beach, New York. <laughs> well, no, you got to put your house on. All right, let's. It's, it doesn't exist. Let's go into more battle stuff. Come. More battles. Yeah, so there were generals still on both sides who, even as the trench warfare solidified, uh, believed a breakthrough was still possible. Haig is obviously among them. Uh, at this point, in one of his letters, he wrote, As soon as we are supplied with ample artillery ammunition of high explosive, I think we can walk through the German lines at several places. In my opinion, the reason we are here is primarily due to want of artillery ammunition, and secondly, our small numbers last November. So he thinks if we had enough men and enough big explosions, we could walk right through the German lines. Which, sure, in theory, of course. Yeah, I mean, like, it's not like he put a finite number on there. On yeah. the big explosions, you could just keep blowing it up, and it's like, 
All right, it's yeah. good now. He had yeah. never heard of fission before, but if he had, he probably would have been saying, "Just drop some nukes on him, and we can just walk right through." Man, so we've I got, wish I was we've German. got a Michael we've got a Michael Bay commander going on. He does have a little Michael Bay to him in this in this regard. Big horse explosions, muscle. more men. And he didn't mention horses, I noticed, which is, I guess he... Well, he might have. I didn't quote the full letter, so... Uh, <laughs> Plus also, horses. can you please send over about 60,000 horses? That will really do it. He just ended every communique with, and please send more horses. <laughs> yeah. And he Some addressed it all to donkey. <laughs> uh, so early 1915... Um, Elsewhere in the war, this, this is when the war is truly expanded to become a world war. Japan has entered by this time. Um, Turkey has entered. Russia and Germany have been fighting all along. Um, the British get involved in the Gallipoli campaign. For those who don't know, this is when the British, primarily at the instigation of Winston Churchill, use their navy to land a shitload of Australians and New Zealanders uh, near Istanbul um, on the Gallipoli Peninsula of Turkey. And the idea is, if we can get, if we can capture capture uh, in Istanbul, we can supply the Russians through the Black Sea. We can knock Turkey out of the war, and it'll be great. Haig is like, this is the stupidest fucking idea I've ever heard in my life. You're just wasting resources and man manpower that we need on the Western Front, and you're all dumbasses, especially fucking Winston Churchill. Probably Haig's most brilliant insight of his entire life, because that's exactly what happened. The Gallipoli campaign goes horribly. It goes so bad that Winston Churchill is fired and thinks that his political career is done forever. Because um, he kind of stakes his whole entire reputation on this. A bunch of Australians and New Zealanders die. If you ask any Australian who knows about World War I, Gallipoli is like their primary remembrance, I would guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, man, this is also yeah. when you said Turkey. This is also like the 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 death rattles of the Ottoman Empire. Yes, yeah. This <laughs> so, is the Ottoman Empire collapsing in on itself. It is. Yeah. They do call it Turkey at this point because it is small enough to be. It doesn't really have much else. <laughs> right. At this right. Point. Um. So Haig is what's going to be known as um, a Westerner in the British like military command. So there's Westerners who are like every single pound that we spend on the war needs to go towards winning the war on the western front and then the other school of thought is the easterners who thought that either um funding russia or finding like a different um front line would be the way to win the war basically saying like no the western front no one's gonna break through it's stupid to like keep pouring manpower into it we need to find somewhere else to beat the germans both of them would be right in the end um but Haig more so that the western front is where the war is going to be won or lost it's pretty quiet there, I hear. Yeah, <laughs> very quiet <laughs> nice. on the Western Front. Um, the first offensive of 1915 is planned for March. It's going to be at Neuve Chapelle, uh, which is in Dave Chappelle. France. Yeah, Dave Chappelle. Um, the British attack with 40,000 men across a two-mile front. Um, for Haig, he thought that this could be... There's like a German salient, which means a bump in the front line. So basically, it's somewhere where the German front line is surrounded on three sides by the British. There's going to be a lot of talk about salience in World War I, just so you know. So most of them are like, no, you just pinch off the salient, and then you have surrounded a, like, small, a decent-sized number of Germans who then surrender. 
Haig was going a step further. He's like, no, 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 no. We're going to break through the German lines here and ride our horses all the way to Berlin. You don't realize how big of a breakthrough <laughs> we're about to achieve. Horses. We have, our, yeah. so we have some of our biggest, bravest horses on this line. And we are yeah. You ever seen a Clyde? You ever seen a Clydesdale, laddie? He's a big horse. <laughs> and we're working on Pegasuses over here too, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah. We strap some bat wings to a Clydesdale. Yeah, it can't uh, fly, so the, but it looks like it can. <laughs> <laughs> this one, this attack would be emblematic of kind of how every single World War One offensive is going to go on the Western Front for the next four years. It's a very heavy bombardment of the opposing lines, where if you were watching it, you'd think, wow, no one could ever survive that. They just destroyed an entire forest in an afternoon. But of course, they live through it. The first attack has limited success, but then the Germans would just counterattack. And then after a month of fighting and thousands of men dead, you're basically back to where you started. That's what happens here. It's what's going to happen over and over and over again in this war. So yeah, New Chapelle, 12,000 casualties for the British, no significant change in territory. Um, now Haig, he takes some lessons from this, it's his you know, first time on the offensive, and he's just reinforced in his belief that nope, all we need is more bombs, more explosions, and more men, and we'll be able to have victory in the future. I mean, I sure. Yeah. Sure, right? Yeah, more it makes people. sense. More people mean more better. Yeah. Jesus, that's all right. Okay. <laughs> but you guys send me more people, though. You ever hear of a thing called flash mobs? They get a lot of clicks because they're fun and cool. It's so many people doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. No one is speckless. Someone was shopping at a stopping shop, and then all of a sudden, everyone's dropping their pants and we're dancing to a Michael Jack. Yeah. <laughs> um,. Now, Haig is still just uh, an army commander. He's still subordinate to Sir John French, but French is not doing so great. Uh, he had just fired um, the guy Smith Dorian that we mentioned, who was in charge of Second Army. Um, he was the one who was, hated the cavalry guys, was a big infantryman back in Aldershot. So Smith Dorian gets fired because he had correctly asked to withdraw and was told he shouldn't. And then when he didn't, he lost like 30,000 men. And so then they fired him for not doing what he wanted to do, even though they ordered him to do it, basically. So he's, he's out. It's a fall guy. Fall guy. Um, and French is also just like spreading rumors. Um, he's gossiping about other generals. He's not playing the social game well. And he's also kind of just losing his mind. And he's not alone in that. The German commander... Um, basically had a nervous breakdown after two months of fighting and had been replaced. And throughout the war, there are just going to be generals and officers and all the way down the line who just are driven insane by this war and have to get washed out of the war. Well, it makes sense. Like, they've all been brought up on this idea of, like, a more traditional warfare. And now there's all these, like, machine guns and gases and things happening. And it's just like, well, everything yeah. I know has... Act like, I spent my whole life figuring out how to do this, and now I'm doing it, and none of this makes sense. I feel right. fucking retarded. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, we, we were making fun of the French for, like, uh, dressing in, you know, blues and whatever, but one of the things that the British officers used to do is when they used to go over the hill into no man's land, they would stand. 
Yeah. They oh, would just the stand walking all war. Like, oh, I'm an officer. With a whistle and a sword. Yeah. <laughs> and they had a pistol, maybe. Like, maybe they had... Well, yeah, no, they would have a pistol, but then it would be a whistle and a sword leading the men forward. It's crazy. That's incredible. It's incredible that uh, anyone even made it out of that one alive. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And it's yeah. just, like, these are also all, like, Victorian-era Europeans who were told, like, Tom, you're talking about, they all have a trade. They all have, like, a skill that they're good at. They also all read poetry in their spare time. They, they go to, like, opera... They're these just, like, very sensitive people just being massacred by artillery over and over and over again. Right. Just someone made the machine and it went fast. And it's like, and it's not like today. It's very hard to compare today. Everyone hates their job. Back then, people knew, like, their social status, their income status. They knew what they were trying to do. And they took pride in it. And now it's like... Yeah, no one was as cynical as people are today. Like, the average person today is a thousand times more cynical than the person back then. Absolutely. They were way more genuine. They wanted to be the best chairmaker in town. And they just got all blown up. It's like, (laughs) fuck, awesome. Really awesome. It took me a year and a half to buy that specific awl that I needed for this chair notch that I need (laughs) to make. That made me king shit. And now I'm fucked because some guys are dropping heavy artillery on my fucking town. God damn it. I should have been like Krups and built cannons. But I just want to make get a chairs for horse shit. We we might all want to shoot shit, but we all need to sit down every now and then. That was my thought process getting into this seventy four years ago, and now it's all yeah. been taken away. God damn it! <laughs> yeah. Um. So on May 9th, Haig is leading his second offensive of the war. This one is at a place called Albert Ridge. It does not go. It goes worse than the first one, which already went pretty terribly. This time, there is no initial success because the British artillery fell short. What that means is, so normally, like, there were these timetables where the artillery would start landing at this trench line of the Germans and then would slowly, like, move further as the infantry advanced. So, like, the infantry is advancing with the uh, artillery in front of them, like, all the explosions. And so when it falls short it means that the artillery is falling on your own troops. And that's what happens at Albert Ridge. Uh, 10,000 British casualties, mostly caused by their own artillery. Oops. Oopsies. (laughs) (laughs) But were they, was that that a secret Krupp plan? Oh, maybe. Uh, Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Um, Haig also noticed, as well as many other British officers, that the Germans are building deeper and stronger defensive fortifications Um, because the Germans have kind of figured out that they're not going to be able to carry out many offensives. They don't have the manpower advantage. So instead, just dig in and hold this line because the British and French might just kill themselves trying to take it, that they eventually give up. That's kind of what the German plan is becoming. They lost their opportunity for the offensive after that initial rush. Yeah, they just they know they have to pick and choose their places more, whereas the British and French are like, yeah, send them up again. Send them over again. Keep sending them. Um, and Haig, despite noticing this, um, decides, well, all right, I guess the solution is to just keep sending more. More bombs, more people, more all of it. Send them in. Uh, now, part of the reason that he is arguing so vehemently for more bombs is not just because explosions are cool. It's also because they have uh, a shell shortage. 
Um, this is affecting every army at this point because so all during peacetime they're building reserves of explosive shells like you know can cannon and artillery and all this. Um, they burned through the stockpiles so too quickly. They did not realize how much they'd be firing artillery at each other. So they'd all blown through their stockpiles. Um, this causes what's called the Shell Scandal in Britain. It leads to the fall of Prime Minister Herbert Asquith's government. So a new coalition has to be formed. Um, and crucially for our story, uh, David Lloyd George becomes Minister of Munitions and helps end the Shell Scandal. He puts in enough factory reforms basically to solve it yeah there are some really famous interesting pictures of like just the piles and piles of shells from artillery just like yeah. mountains of copper i think that's what the shell is made out of this I might think. sound like a kind of stupid question but were they able to like recycle those and not in like an earth in earth friendly way but more of like to make the the product that was, I think, quicker like something they were working on so Obviously, the explosive, you no, know, but like the shells, they were developing ways to either have them be reusable or ways that you could melt the metal down and make the metal useful in other ways. Right. Um, so that kind of like assembly line starts up, I think, in around this time in 1915, where it's like we're firing so many shells now, they're and there's like a demand for it that they're developing better recyclable shells and stuff like that. You hear that? Mm. Recycling is a product of war. <laughs> that's right fortune of war enjoy it everyone enjoy their fortunes as they sit up and watch their netflix which came from war yeah telecommunications <laughs> of war mm -hmm. Shout out to war. Uh, so now we're into autumn 1915 uh Haig is still commander of first army so what that means is he has command over like the tactical decisions of what the army will do, but not the strategic ones. So he's still not, he's not the one who decides let's go on an offensive. He's being told go on an offensive and then has to figure it out. Um, and most of the high command, including Haig in late 1915 is like, all right, um, we're not in shape for an offensive. Like we've already tried a few. They're not going well. Thousands of men are dying every day, just living on the Western front. But it's, uh, concerns in Russia that lead to Kitchener agitating for a new offensive in autumn because the Russian army is collapsing and it seems like they might drop out of the war soon and that would mean the Germans bring another 2 million men to the Western Front. So it's like, put the pressure on to help the Russian allies. Uh, he's never Haig is never comfortable preparing for this attack. Um, it's completely flat terrain. There's no forests, there's no hills, there's no rivers. It's just a long, flat expanse to the German lines um, and thinks that this is going to be a futile attack and millions of people, not millions, thousands of people are going to die. We shouldn't do this. Um, but John French uh, says, nope, we're going to do it. French. Um, now, Haig could have resigned and said, like, I will not carry out this order that I know is going to lead to nothing. He's not going to do that. That's right. He carries it out. Uh, six divisions of the BEF goes against two divi German divisions across this wide open plain. And um, it's going to start with another big bombardment. This is the Battle of Luce, by the way. I didn't ever said what battle it was. This is a big, like the first like, really huge offensive that the British do. The other two are a little smaller. Um, they start with a thousand artillery pieces shelling this whole German line. 
and they, for the first time ever, use chlorine gas against the German uh, army. So the Brits did that first? No, the Germans had already used it a little earlier, um, but both sides were going to use it eventually, um, and each side accuses the other of actually doing it first, but this is the first time the British are using it in like a large-scale effort. All right. You know what? Everyone loves to go to a public pool and smell that chlorine smell. That's a good smell. Yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> this is, uh, so like we said, this is autumn 1915. There are actually still no gas shells. So the way you use poison gas in August or in September of 1915 is you take big giant barrels of chlorine and then open the top and hope that the wind is going in that direction. Not very smart. That's how poison gas was deployed. And uh, that couldn't go wrong, right? Of course not. Why wouldn't they buy big old fans? (laughs) No, they just had guys behind it with a tarp, just waving it. Indian guys. (laughs) Indian guys. They called them the wafters. Yeah. They're just out there (laughs) wafting. What's that smell? We didn't even open the barrels yet. (laughs) <laughs> they're still sealed <laughs> um, so in some sectors along the British line the gas drifts all over to the German lines and chlorine gas at this point so you can like see it coming um, and it's very slow moving like it only moves about this like a little bit slower than walking pace but obviously you have to like man the front line so if you don't have a gas mask on you're going to die a horrible death or you have to abandon your post Okay. Um, so yeah, it works in some places. In other places, the wind is blowing in the British faces, and the entire second division never even gets off the ground because the gas blows back in their faces and they have to retreat from their own offensive. <laughs> awesome. Smart. <laughs> yeah. Now, that, have, these guys, some... have these guys never played a Battle Royale game? I mean, you have to stay out of the gas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just reminds me of, like, you know, like... You watch these fights and stuff on Twitter, like awesome internet fights, and like every now and then you'll just catch one where some guy tries to do a flying kick and then like hurts himself really bad. Yeah. yeah. Like does That's like awesome. a swing kick and instead like knocks himself unconscious. Right. So imagine <laughs> that, but this, someone told him to do it. Yeah. So there's like two steps to that failure. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, can we blame this on Haig? You know, he doesn't dictate the wind. However, he... <laughs> The morning of the morning, except my wind. Yeah. Um, the reason he so he he was told like, look, if you don't think it's windy enough, you can order them not to do the gas, or you can order them to do the gas. And the way he said, you know what, do go ahead with the gas attack, was because he watched his orderly light up a cigarette and saw the cigarette smoke blow in one direction, and he goes, ah, that's good enough for me. Open the tanks. Send the gas. Whoa. What a dumb shit. He didn't even do the, like, lick your finger and put it up in the air thing. He watched a early smoke a cig. That's like, that's like writing from a 2010s, like, um, like spy movie that no one wants to watch. I can't even think of an example because the 2010s are riddled with some of the worst movies ever. Like, like the born majority. Yeah. Like, oh, I figured out (laughs) which way the guy's coming from because the way the cigarette was lit. It's like, you fucking idiots. You, like, fuck. God damn it. Yep. 
Now, uh, Haig could have delayed the attack. You know, he could have said, you know, do another day of bombardment, hope for a better wind day, or hope for the bombardment <laughs> to do a little bit more. Better wind day. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he knew that if he did delay the attack, he would be unlikely to get the promotion that he was seeking. Because he was seeking to get French sacked and to have himself in the position of commander-in-chief. So he knew he had to carry out this attack in order to keep himself in line for that promotion. Sure. Now, some of the British day one objectives were achieved. Um, however, in most places, the Germans held. Um, one World War I historian wrote, Never had machine guns had such straightforward work to do. The enemy could be seen falling literally in hundreds. So like we said, it's just a big flat grassland, and they're just walking towards machine guns. Smart. Yeah. Um, however, those day one objectives, three days later, the Germans counterattack and take all of it back and even advance in some places along the British line. It's called off uh, on October 8th. The British had suffered 60,000 casualties once again. Yeah, and also, uh, I mean, I think we point out, you mentioned these lines are stationary, but it literally is like a war of feet at, yeah. uh, towards the end of the line. Like, you're, you take their trench, they dig another trench, right? You know, it's... The movement well, like is the, so small. Yeah, because it's like you have six trenches. Like, you have your frontline yeah. trench and your reserve trench. And, it, oh, we lost the first two. Well, counterattack, and now we got our first two back, and we took their first trench. But then they counterattacked us and took three of our trench. It, that's all it is. Yeah. It's like two miles is considered a huge advance in this war. Yeah. Well, and on the Western Front. The Eastern Front is that's moving different. around the whole yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then also in... Africa, there's shit going on. That's different, and who yeah. cares? Turkey. Now, despite this uh, horrific outcome for the battle, Haig would boldly claim that he could have won the entire war if John French had just given him two more reserve divisions. So, I don't know how he can convince himself of that one, but that's what he did. So, on November 25th, a month after this battle, John French is finally fired by the government, he's relieved of his command, and Haig is installed as the new commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force on December 15th. Uh, nobody was sad to see French leave. Uh, I think the people who were happiest the most that French was leaving were the French. Um, they never liked him. They thought they could get along better with Haig. Haig spoke a little French, so that was a better... He could actually well, communicate. Yeah, he he took his uh, AP class at Oxford yeah, in French. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm, it also, worked out. French with a Scottish accent's got to be like the grossest sounding Ugh. language in the world, right? Dude, you've got the nasal and the guttural in there. <laughs> <laughs> that's very bad. Mm -hmm. What you've done, Travis, is the most accurate depiction of a freestyle of what a language sounds like phonetically that I've ever heard. Yes, I know. It's very true. I'm a linguist. And, that, and that's gross. <laughs> <laughs> so Haig is 54, he's 54 years old at this time, and he holds the highest possible command the British Empire could ever offer to an army officer. He's mostly unknown to the public at this point, all that's going to change now that he is the my, most high-profile guy in the British military. So basically, he's finally achieved the apex of his profession. He's in command of everything. He's done it. But now he actually has to fight World War I. 
Right. So, uh, so in the British Army, um, obviously the the commander in chief, the president, is the top of the army here. But then you have like five star generals. What's their mm-hmm. top title? Well, so they had they had gotten rid of the commander in chief during that like uh, Elgin commission that was a night after the Boer War. Right. Placed it with like a war council, and so I think that's still what's like in command right now. But Haig is like the BEF commander. So there's the War Council that's dictating all British strategy, but then he is dictating the Western Front is his. That that is his okay. command. At this okay, point. I gotcha. He still has to answer to the politicians a little bit, and we'll get into that, like his disagreements with them. Um but he yeah, he can kind of do as he sees fit on the Western Front. Whew. And he's gonna he's gonna start yelling at the wind. We're like, wind, yeah. you better listen to me. You better start going the right way. Go to those Germans. In my war, it's always Wednesday. (laughs) Okay, so due to editing and the future, Connor, thanks very much for presenting this chunk of Haig's life to us and Mm -hmm. letting us understand that uh, World War I is not only stupid, but kind of lame. Kind of lame. And we're going to get to, like, the lamest parts of it. (laughs) Oh, dude, I hope the wind gets better next episode. The wind will get better. Um, the rest won't. Oh, I'll leave it at that. So if you got a light, if you got a weak stomach, uh, don't eat before you listen to next week's. <laughs> Can't wait to eat. Can't wait to have a burrito. Thank you, Shane. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. You belong here. Patreon.com slash RoastMortemCast. Uh, RoastMortemCast.com. Buy your merchandise. Buy the artwork that Travis has put up there. It's there's a lot of penises and stuff like that. Um, go to OnlyFans.com slash RoastMortemCast. You'll find us there. Um, it's really, it's our reading feeds. So when we're studying for the episodes, yeah. we just live stream it. Yeah, so yeah, there's yeah. no talking. Yeah. You just get to watch a guy sit there, uh, touch sit his there. nipples. Yeah. Right. Every now and, and then. And uh, give Mike a dollar. Yeah. Yeah, Mike's still poor. So until that changes, give us your money, and we promise to give it to him. Ding, ding. Uh, Bye.